Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You know, man, what the fuck you talk about, man? Let's go get big fame, man. Cash money, too, man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a listener, Jacob Malley, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, asked us if we ever noticed that we mention porn in one way or another in every episode. Why do you think we do that? I, I didn't really notice. It's sort of like a fish not noticing water. <laughs> but I do know this. Thank you for writing that in so that we could include a reference to porn as part of our uh, email episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I imagine it will. I imagine it would have come up anyway, but uh, <laughs> I, you know, given, given that we have a, the streak, I, I think it's just very relevant. You know, I think that it's <laughs> it's like when you have a hitting streak in baseball. It's good to get it out of the way early so you don't have to. The pressure doesn't build. <laughs> the pressure. Uh, for the, uh, for the oh, and the, the and the pressure definitely builds. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, thank you. Did I mention who I was? And I think oh, I, right? you did, and I didn't say I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University, still at Duke University. Um, and today we're doing an episode that is largely constructed by you, our listeners. Thank you to all for all of the emails, tweets, Facebook comments. We got good fodder, I think. Yeah, well, we've been saying we're going to do this for a while, and now we are. This is going to be a whole episode answering your questions, talking about some of the ideas that you raise, and there have been so many of them. Dave and I have each chosen five that we're going to respond to on this episode, and then further down the line, we might do another one of these, depending on how this one goes. Right. So we'll see. So I was just out visiting you, as you know, uh, giving a talk for Walter's Lab, crashing that moral psychology research group weekend, which was a lot of fun. I got. I remember it was at Walter Sinnott Armstrong's party. Comes up if I've had a few drinks. That I, 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 <laughs> so it always comes. So, so it always comes up. Exactly. That I'm morally opposed to bicycle helmets, <laughs> and I am. Part of the issue is people are a bit douchey about bicycle helmets if you're not wearing it. They get judgmental about it. Um, so for my first question is: Do you do you ride a bicycle? I do, and I ride oh, okay. it through Houston. I ride from my. I just did it today, actually. Uh, road to campus from my house. It's about seven miles, but you have to cut through downtown. A lot of bicycle trails, but you also have to cut through downtown at one point. No bicycle helmet. Here, down here, this is a good thing about the South. You don't have, you, you generally don't have people being all snooty about you should really wear a helmet, sir. You really should be wearing a helmet. Uh, but you go up, you go up to the Northeast or you go to most college towns and you're going to get that. So that's number one reason I hate it. But I realize it's stronger than that. It's not just that I do, it's, 
it's I, I actually think it's wrong, and I actually think I, I've, <laughs> I'm, I'm only partly joking about this. That I think that there is a connection between people wearing bicycle helmets and supporting torture. <laughs> uh, like, like a like, meaningful one, not like one of those meaningless correlations, like people who like, <laughs> no like, eat right. broccoli also. No, in fact, I think probably a lot of the people who wear bicycle helmets are outspoken against torture in terms of their <laughs> rhetoric. But what they do when they wear a bicycle helmet is support torture. So that's, okay, <laughs> I mean, like the kind of torture that goes on at Guantanamo or at the CIA black sites, and you know, the kind of torture <laughs> to to get information. Yeah, you mean that. Okay, let's hear, let's hear. Uh... Well, so it's not immediately obvious why that is? <laughs> no. All right, I'm kind of surprised I have to spell this out for you, but so bicycle helmets, right? Look, first of all, the evidence that they do anything is very minimal and it's controversial. And But let's just say it is. Let's just say that there's a tiny, tiny risk that you'll be more seriously hurt. Okay, wait. Before um, yeah. before we continue, um, the burden will be on you to post uh, the the articles that that defend this statistical claim because I I'm not disagreeing. I, it, not, but this I'm, doesn't this doesn't hang on. Nothing hangs on statistics here. I'm making a conceptual claim. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conceptual dude, moral dude, argument. This is a dude. moral argument. Uh, uh, I, but right. But the question really is, what is the advantage? I mean, I think it's an important. To can you just let, let me? <laughs> I will let, I will try to let you finish. Continue. Yeah. The evidence is mixed. I will provide links to articles on this, <laughs> uh, that, the, that the evidence is mixed. Actually, one of the reasons why it actually might be safer to not wear a helmet is cars. There's research that cars drive closer to you, right. to people who are wearing helmets, than to people who are not wearing helmets. But again, whatever. The, the whole point is it's this, it's, we have a culture right now of utter of just obsessive risk averseness and yeah and and it doesn't matter how many people are inconvenienced it doesn't matter what you have to go through i mean some fucking dipshit tried to light his shoe on fire and like put a shoe bomb on a plane it didn't work and because of that millions of people have to take off their shoes every time they go to the airport it's it's I, I hate that. I think about him, that guy. I think about that guy every time I have that to fucking guy, take off that my guy, shoes. That guy, I mean, like, he was, like, like, mentally unstable. It didn't work. And now, all of a sudden, <laughs> every single person has to take off their shoes, right? So it's, it's and, and the bicycle helmet thing is part and parcel of that. It's this, if, if, there's, if there's a tiniest little chance that this might prevent some sort of harm or death, then you have to, then you have to wear it. And it's that same philosophy it's that same principle that gets people to support torture because if there's even the tiniest little bit of information that might save you (laughs) save uh you know a bomb from going off in a subway somewhere or god forbid another 9-11 then we have to take that chance (laughs) so there it is it's it's, it's straightforward it's clear it's direct i mean it's fine if you want to wear a helmet but know that you're supporting torture when you wear that helmet (laughs) This is, this is, I feel like, uh, uh, the, you're going to end up like at a Starbucks with like a, uh, a, a notepad full of really, really small letters and bunch of little arrows connecting ideas. And you're going to, everybody who sits next to you, you're going to just be like convincing them about like, <laughs> it's already kind of like that. <laughs> how, how you figured it all out. <laughs> it's definitely already like that, I think. Uh, so, so okay, well, I, I got to say, if there is even the slightest 
So, I mean, I have mixed feelings about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually am not entirely unconvinced because of what you said, like cars, cars drive closer to you. So I think, by the way, invisible helmets are the way to go. Because then the car would be like, <laughs> and then there's there's other people who have argued that you drive you ride your bicycle more recklessly when you're wearing a helmet, or that it cuts right. peripheral vision or something like that. But if there is, like, I think it turns on whether there is at all. Like taking all that into account, are there fewer uh, head injuries once you control for say how many cars hit you? Like if a car hits you, uh, do you are you more likely to get a severe head injury if you're not wearing a helmet? If that's true, like it's hard for me not to. Would it would be hard for me to to not put on a helmet? Well, right? like, I, I, then you support torture, which is fine. I mean, I'm glad you're being <laughs> straightforward and direct about it. But I mean, uh, it, you know, it's 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 uh, a thing. It's, it's if there's even the slightest chance, you know, there's the slightest chance mm-hmm. that ev- forcing everybody to take their shoes off will will prevent a, 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 a an airplane bomb. So it does. It, it does really turn on on the the empirical uh, facts that that the, that the chances are slight, right. but but I'm with you actually on this in that like uh, you know what's to stop people from wearing helmets in, in their car too? I'm sure <laughs> that that'll be happening soon. I mean, people are talking about airbags in <laughs> fucking bicycle helmets now. I swear to God, that's a thing. <laughs> Airbag in a bicycle helmet. Just and we're the only them. country that does this. You go to n- no other country that do they obsess about helmets. Go to Holland and see, and and, the, and it's these yeah. kids like texting down these like main <laughs> streets. Like I don't know how they do it. That seems crazy to me. Uh, we're just the yeah, but a lot of it is about the drivers, like drivers who who know how to sort of. Avoid <sighs> it's an American, like I swear to God, you know, we're 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 in serious decline. <laughs> it's a, this is evidence that it's just over. Yeah, it's just over. Right. It's the whole bicycle. But what about motorcycles? Yeah, I mean motorcycles. I don't know. For some reason, I mean, I've never. I'm not. A, I'm not a biker. I know I look like a biker, kind of, <laughs> but but I'm, but I'm not. So, do you want your daughter to not wear a helmet? If she rides so I give her the option. She wears one, and I'm sort of secretly happy that she wears one, just because I don't want the judging eyes of everybody on me. <laughs> oh, really? Not because she might actually prevent it. Well, no. I mean, for that too, I guess. Again, I I think the evidence is mixed, but yeah, for my daughter, you know, it's why she's nine years, ten, ten now. Holy shit, ten. Right. <laughs> she just came home actually she's just <laughs> flashing f- 10 fingers at me um but it's nice to know though that you feel the same way about bicycle helmets that that you feel about condoms um, <laughs> you know <laughs> fuck condoms <laughs> wear a condom you support torture that's all I'm uh all right shall we dig into to some yeah some let's dig emails. into some of these emails um first of all i want to say that if we don't mention your email we definitely got more than 10 of Things, right. things that were worth saying. Um, I didn't pick necessarily what I thought were the best emails or the best comments. I picked the ones I sort of most wanted to talk about. The, the ones that were most more recent also, I think, got, <laughs> got uh, right. you know, because I think we, I also tried to pick ones with a couple of exceptions that we haven't responded to just privately, personally. Yeah. Already. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, there's, there's, uh, we've read all of the emails and, and there might be overlap with our emails, so why don't you start with? Uh, with- well, actually, these don't count, but um, we got a couple of more sort of, 
I don't know, uh, just questions about about how we do the podcast and also like would we things that that listeners would want and I sort of grouped them all together. I'd rather not count this as one of my five, but one of them was I was wondering what you think about this. Uh, Someone asked us to do a clean episode. Yeah, I was actually going to bring this. Was this was actually? Oh, one this of my is going to be. This is yeah. one of your five. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you talk? Why don't you? Uh, this is from Mark Ellis. I was wondering if you'd ever considered if you've ever considered doing a clean episode, one that parents might feel comfortable letting their middle and high school age kids listen to. I discussed some of the issues covered in your podcast with my kids, e.g., trolley experiments, and they get really engaged. My twelve-year-old wants to do a social psychology experiment for the county science fair next year. That's great, Mark. Thanks. So, Mark, this is, I actually emailed quick note back to Mark. I thought this is a, it's actually a good idea. And, and I think it, it pairs nicely with some emails that we've gotten to do maybe sort of a background, a more foundational episode. A foundational one, just going over different theories, different term, terminology and stuff like right. that. So I was intrigued by this question, though, to do a clean episode. And part of why, why I was intrigued was, one, I, I would love it if there were an episode that kids could actually listen and get into. Um, but two, I wonder if we could. Like, I, I wonder if we're I capable of it. Well, first of all, I have a question. Yeah. Can you talk about porn in a clean episode? <clears throat> um, no. Like, <laughs> you can't even reference it at all? I mean, you could, but what? But so we're going to break our streak so that this guy can play the podcast for his kids? We could have at the very beginning, instead of the disclaimer that we have currently, we could, we could, we could have Liza record something saying, this episode is clean. It doesn't contain any references to shit, fuck, <laughs> porn. <laughs> Essentially, he wants us to put our podcast through a mikvah. <laughs> what? <laughs> mikvah. That's this little bath thing that Jews go in. <laughs> And it cleans you, like both metaphorically and somewhat uh, so spiritually and, and yeah. physically. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we could do that? Maybe a, I think a, we could try. Yeah. It'd be funny. <laughs> we might. Let's try, yeah. and we'll see I how we successful do it. Look, we, are. we could aim for yeah. like a thirty-minute episode where we we'll just get it all out of our, our systems in this one. Fuck shit, cock <laughs> balls, <laughs> asshole. Fuck. Honestly, the the tween market is huge. You know, we should really be aiming to. Uh, <laughs> it's like young adult young adult literature. Uh, I mean, my daughter is listening right now. She's not offended. <laughs> I I have to believe that your daughter is, at this point, not the easily offended type. <laughs> that's, uh, that's correct. <laughs> uh, finally, I, I know that some of our listeners have been interested in how we just put the podcast together. Right. And uh, Derek Lieban, who's, who has a podcast of his own called, fuck, what, what's it called? <laughs> See, this is why we can't. Uh, there's no reason. That was just totally gratuitous. There's no reason fuck. to say it's that. It's called, fuck, what's it called? Axon and Axioms. That's the podcast. So what we do is we have decent microphones that we bought, part supported by your donations, and um, and we record locally. We, we, go, we talk over Skype. We record record locally and then we mix them together and we found that that's by far the best way to do it Um, the skype recorders and all of that then you're just then you are hostage to how good your connection is but if you record locally as long as you can even if you record locally you can talk on the phone if um if you don't have a good internet connection and it'll still work also just a shout out to pete mandick who has a podcast of his own um he's a philosopher at William Patterson University, and his podcast is called Space Time Mind. Yeah, Space Time Mind. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking of other podcasts, so you were on uh, Partially Examined Life. 
Yes, um, that's correct. So that that was up to that was. Very, Did you listen to that? I, I finally listened to a good chunk of it. It's very hard for me to listen to myself. Uh, I listened to a good chunk of of it, but I never finished it in part because I was just bored because there were no poop jokes. It was like real philosophy. It was no like porn you know, riff. I don't think <laughs> no there was porn. a porn riff. It was it was good. Like I, I I really enjoyed it. I thought you know the the part that I was listening to I thought actually turned out well. They I was worried about someone else editing me. You know that they're not gonna make right. me sound stupid like like right. I am instead of you know the the, the edited version <laughs> that you all see, which is still stupid, but stupid without so many eyes right. in them you know yeah so uh, yeah that's another part just for for the curious i don't know why anybody would care but tamler after we record tamler does the editing and then i do the uh splicing together of all the segments and the music and and all that and uh sometimes i'm the one who cleans audio if we've had any audio problems with our guests and you know but now we're getting into nerd territory. But yeah. for those, Dave does all the music too. Yeah, Wait, uh, well, some of our listeners, some of the some of them really, really more, yeah. yeah, some yeah. of the, some of the ones with not as good taste. So, some <laughs> of the ones that kind of hold themselves up in their <laughs> rooms and uh, uh, right. and start planning revenge against all the people who've wronged them. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, so that okay. was my first email. What's yeah. yours? So my number five is Jennifer Cohen. I'll just read it to you. Dear Tamler, it's sort of addressed to me. <laughs> Clearly. Thank you so much for hanging in there with Dave regarding the alleged suppression of girls' interests and ability in <laughs> maths and sciences. The link below is to an article about a recent decline in medical school applications for women, but the data contained therein really challenges Dave's premise. That's you that society discourages girls from pursuing math and science at school. In 2008, 50.3% of all science and engineering degrees were awarded to women. When you focus on the biological sciences, women earned 58.5% of degrees in 2000, 642 in 2004, and 598 in 2008. As you rightly argued, the issue of why women don't remain in engineering and the sciences once they've attained their degree is a separate issue that I would guess speaks more to the job satisfaction those areas offer. And, you know, just data like that, and also Rob Sick on Facebook challenged you. I mean, now you have haters. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> now <laughs> Some take, haters I'm going to take a there, sleeping right? pill and act like a bitch online. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe you want to hesitate before tearing the American girls out of the sobbing embrace of little girls uh, and forcing them to play with G.I. Joes, just given the fact that they are actually at levels, you know, at, at, in higher education, already graduating with more degrees, even in some of the STEM areas. The key thing, and you'll see as I responded to her, but you probably didn't pay attention uh, to the response. That um, that when you lump them all together, the the uh, some of the differences don't seem so obvious. When you actually look at the specific STEM fields, there are huge disparities. Like the, there, I don't I don't know that the that the right method to critique my view is by saying like there actually isn't that much of a difference in science between men and women because. I think it's just obvious when you look. Wait, wait, I don't understand when you really look, like, you, you, you're saying that, but 50.3% of all science and engineering degrees were awarded to women. Yeah, right? so so this is driven uh, hugely by earth sciences and biology, 
and there are huge disparities in mathematics, engineering, and physics. So there's disparities in some more than others, but it doesn't. There are huge differences in the STEM fields, um, and in particular, the the ones that I was talking about were the ones in which there are huge differences. But I mean, is it plausible <clears throat> that the toys have anything to do? Well, that's with a different the fact question. That they right? want to go into the biological sciences or so, the earth sciences more than they <laughs> want to go into. Uh, engineering. I mean, it's nice that you didn't even click on the link that I responded with. I did. Oh well, I didn't see your response. I don't think I got. I that. copied I you. I, I made. A, I went out of my way to copy you. Uh, anyway, thank you, Jennifer Cohen. Thank you, Rob Sicka, also uh, who is awaiting a response um, from you about the dead. He was awaiting. You know, I don't feel that. I don't feel as if there's that much work to be done to show that there are disparities. Um, the question, I think the more pressing question is the one that you ask, which is, is the link have anything to do with early socialization, uh, particularly the kinds of messages they get from the media, including commercials about toys? I, I think the thing that these emails that have been supporting me in Facebook comments and stuff uh, <laughs> the- show is that I did a terrible job defending my position <laughs> and I needed help and I'm glad to have gotten a little yes what's your number four thank you Jennifer uh, right. it's actually a collection of emails on that we tend to get that I thought it was worth addressing um, and so this particular email is from Larson Landy's really it's about revenge and our view on revenge in some of the early episodes so so we've often defended sort of uh, in contrast to many, many people like our colleagues who think of revenge as barbaric. And in fact, we've, we've been accused with those very words on Twitter of having barbaric views on revenge. And, a, and an endorsement withdrawn. And an endorsement withdrawn, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that Larson points out is, he says, I think it's fair to say that in dealing with scenario, you've presented the rightness of seeking revenge as obvious. You've implied, I think, that when a man, you've adopted a very masculine stance in dealing with the topic, doesn't seek to avenge serious insults and injuries inflicted on his family, it's because he's cowardly or disloyal or otherwise inhuman. Uh, and this pairs well with another criticism that we've gotten, which is that we, when it's convenient for us, we appeal to intuition, um, and when it's not, we don't. Uh, there's a general, I think in some cases this is in fact fair, and so, but, but there is a general, just a, a weak defense that I want to amount to mount to, uh, for the way that we talk on the podcast, which is, you know, we go into detail about what we want to go into detail for sure, but uh, there's no way we can be as careful in our arguments as we would uh, otherwise say in, in written work. So, so one of the things that I suggested to to the, the person on Twitter who was accusing us of being barbaric and not defending our intuitions was to at least at least look at our written work because if you really want to know our position is maybe read something that we've written. Especially, I also, I mean, I disagree that we just arbitrarily appeal to intuition sometimes and sometimes don't. I mean, I think I'm pretty straightforward about what I think intuition can do and what I think it can't do. And I think it can do, a, I think it has to do a lot. Yeah. And, um, and we have entire episodes else. dedicated to the role of yeah. intuition. I, I, I honestly think that, that, you know, when it comes to moral questions, there are the facts and there are basic rules of logical inferences, and then there are your intuitions. And when people agree about the facts, then chances are their disagreement is the result of intuition, and that's all there is. I mean, you can think that there's more. You can be a Kantian like Dave, but there isn't. (laughs) 
that, that, that actually frustrates me, that criticism. Oh, you guys are just appealing to intuition. And the implication is I am appealing to reason. Or, but that reason is just their intuition that's being dressed up as reason. Right. So I have less sympathy with this criticism, I think. Yeah, no, uh, and I didn't mean to sound too sympathetic. I, I just meant to present to present the criticism in, in order to defend it. But I think it's also fair to say that some some intuitions seem driven by by an emotional response and and some are sort of more basic and foundational but still i I still don't think that we are we're being unfair either for for the accusation that we're being especially masculine in in defending revenge (laughs) if you knew us uh so one possibility is insecurity uh but another thing to take seriously and i think you write you write about this tamler and and um others have written about this that that uh, the desire for revenge is, is certainly not limited to to males, and in not fact, at all. Yeah. yeah, and in fact, the driving force behind a lot of revenge in in blood feuds and, and cultures of honor um, come comes from from the, the females take on the job of of egging on the males. Um, now, it's true that aggressive forms of revenge are often committed by males, and that may be what's coming across in our tone. Uh, but I don't think that revenge is a male, a male perspective. You also do believe that an ethic of care might, might there might be gender differences. I, I know. I mean, I'm interested in the ethics of care more as a substantive, normative approach okay. rather than a, as a, a like like. So the Carol Gilligan stuff, I don't know enough about the research to support yeah. that or not. I just like it. I think yeah, they're yeah, right yeah. about um, that this about is it. the way to approach ethic. I, for me, and when we do this restorative justice episode, and I can't wait until we do because I'm very excited. I haven't, about I haven't signed on to this yet. I know. Uh, well, yeah, you have. <laughs> uh, when we go back to that, I mean, that's, that, that's the thing that I want when it comes to justice is it for, for it to be personal. And revenge is one way of making it personal, but it's not the only way of making it personal. Right. And so, and I think we actually do. Yeah, we do need to revisit this because I, you, and I don't have the same the same views on this. Okay. So, what's do you have a? We're on your number four. Four. It's from Billy Pritchett, um, and I think this is really interesting. Dear Doctor Summers and Doctor Pizarro, I'm a new listener of your Very Bad Wizards podcast. I discovered the podcast when Doctor Summers did the most most recent partial exam in life precog regarding free will and the Strawsons. Um, and he says he loves it. He'll continue to listen, and that the exchange between us is engaging and hysterically irrelevant. <laughs> I don't know if he means irreverant or just irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, right. Irrelevant is probably he's probably more right. right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, in one of the episodes I listened to, I think it was the personal identity and movies episode. You guys were talking about how you didn't think it makes sense how Buddhists could believe in reincarnation when it's not clear what gets reincarnated. Obviously, as you said, neither the memories nor the body get passed on. So, what would, for example, make the next me me? There was a time when I flirted with ideas of Buddhism and was interested in this seeming paradox as well, and I think I've come up with a kind of solution that could count as a charitable reading of what gets passed from life to life. It could be the case that what makes the next me, me, is that in the new body, with the new brain, mind, and new memories, I have first-person, what-it-feels-like qualia, Qualia is one of those words that we should define. It's just (laughs) subjective experience. Um, Like just what it feels like to be that person. 
If this is what Siddhartha and Buddhists actually believed, it would make sense why reincarnation might be viewed as a kind of hell. We would constantly be reborn in a new body with a new mind and brain and have to rediscover all over again who, how best to live our lives, not knowing about the previous connections to our other lives. And he says, curious to what you guys think. And I just thought that was really interesting, and I wanted to ask you if you thought that. So is there... Is there something that it feels like to be us that doesn't involve our memories, our mental states, our physical states, uh, our sense of humor, our just general right. dispositions? Is there just something that it f- like? Is there something it feels like to be Tamler that you can disconnect from all of those things? It's hard, you know. To, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. I thought it was a a, a very interesting email as well, um, and I think that, that one of the one of my initial feelings about this is that, um, well, what matters to me is memory, uh, and and if I don't have memory, I, I don't know that I would I could I could say that I am the same person um, that I was before. Like, if you wiped my mind, I, I feel like it might be akin to dying. But that actually can't be true. That that uh, People get amnesia all the time, and they remember some things. But depending on the kind of amnesia that you have, like the, they forget, they forget who they are entirely. They're unable to form any new memories. Um, in some cases, anterograde amnesia, and so severe deficits in memory. Um, but these people still seem to to not have sort of be confused too much about identity. I, I think that there is there is still a persistent self that carries on. But now, you take away memory, take away the body, take away everything. It would have to, on my view, it would have to be um, qualia, like the feeling of what it is to be David, would have to be carried on in some physical, like that information, that, that, that would have to be transmitted physically. That would, that, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I guess in some ways it's, it's just... You have to believe in a kind of dualism yeah. to believe that this is true, right. uh, and I don't think either of us are dualists. But on the other hand, I was sort of just interested in the idea that there's something it feels like to be me that it that that doesn't have to do with anything in, in involving my mental state, and even the fact that I'm a guy, the fact that I'm uh, right. you know the, that I'm my age, the fact that I'm you know that 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 there just might be just this right. persisting like a way I look at the world or way I I think I, that's you know. yeah I think it's probably an illusion right I think that probably that that continuity is what is is yeah. uh, promoting this this the sense that we are. That we that you are Tamler and I'm David, and that this persists through time. Because I bet you, if if you just all of a sudden were to put my phenomen my phenomenological experience from ten years ago, just zap it into my mind, it might feel extremely different. And uh, and in fact, never mind if you put us back in high school or something. Right, right, right. So I've often thought, like, I really feel like I'm the same person I was, you know, like when I was nine years old. Um, but every once in a while, I hear or read something that I that I said or that I wrote, and I'm like, "What? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I know. That cannot have been me." And, um, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Billy Pritchett. Let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll do three more. You wonder ever you're a bad man? No.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, before we get into our top three, not you know, I shouldn't say these are ranked. Yeah, these, they're not yeah, really ranked. I mean, they're just these aren't ranked loosely at Loosely organized, but yeah. <laughs> just wanted to thank everybody for the contributions. We've really been grateful, and and a lot of kind messages and donations, and a lot of use of Amazon, um, which is which has really helped us because as our listening audience grows, um, the the cost for bandwidth also grows. So we appreciate the support. Uh, remember, you can always support us by going and clicking on the Amazon link under the support page uh, and doing your shopping there and or donate via PayPal to us. Uh, we always appreciate it. So thanks. Yeah, and thanks for rating us on iTunes. I think last time I, I asked for people to go on iTunes and rate us so we could get to 100 because we had like 90. We were so close. We had like 95. And uh, and we've gotten a bunch of new ratings, so we appreciate that as well. And you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Um, tweet us at peas, at Tamler, or at verybadwizards. And as always, check out Matt Welch's Matt Tumblr Welch. page, very popular Tumblr page. Um, and Matt also runs our Twitter account. All right. So, oh, one last thing. <clears throat> so we're going to have our 50th episode. That's in, I don't know. Hopefully. Which is, hopefully. If <laughs> we last that long. And um, one of the things that we've talked about that would be funny is, and I don't know if, if any of our listeners would be interested in this or not, but if you are and you feel like going and doing some sort of mashup of some of your favorite little bits that we've done over the course of the whatever, 40, 48, 49 episodes. If we, if we get a good one from that, we'll play it. So, um, and if you don't know what a mashup is, you're probably not doing this. So I've, I've, uh, the thought actually came to me that I would be deathly afraid to hear someone put splice together all of the crazy shit that's come out of our mouths because I honestly forget most of what I've said. Um, up, and which up, is a good thing, I, right? That's good thing. I don't to, think I can yeah. live with myself. So, <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> so this would be right, but but for the fiftieth episode, we might put ourselves through the shame That's of that. Right. That's right. So if uh, <laughs> so, if you're a fan of the show and you're interested in doing that, yeah, let us know. All right, my third email from listener Dave Herman, who just pointed us to a, a, an interesting set of research findings that I thought was worth talking about. Hi, Tamler, Dave. Gotta say your podcast is incredible. I've been listening since the beginning and you never disappoint. Just thought I'd mention this guy I heard about on a different podcast, Freakonomics, where they were discussing the benefits of otherwise learning or, or otherwise of learning a foreign language. And he links to a professor at the University of Chicago named Boaz Kazar, who has uh, done research into the influence of second languages on decision making. He specifically mentions how bilingual people, given the trolley problem type moral questions to consider, make significantly different more harsh decisions when they're asked to answer in their second, i.e. non-native language. So specifically, I looked at the paper and we'll link uh, to it. The people are more utilitarian when they are answering in a second language. Um, and this is when you look at the other findings that this, that this researcher has, has done. But, but I thought they were more harsh uh, yeah, well, in the second language. They, they are actually, they're just more utilitarian. Um, oh, okay. so that is that they are harsh in the sense that they're willing to sacrifice the fat guy to save the the five. I see. Okay. And the general and he's also done he and his colleagues have also done other research on people speaking there. So these are 
bilinguals speaking their non-native language. Uh, turns out that when you're speaking your non-native language, you are also less likely to fall prey to a number of judgmental errors like biases that have been documented in the literature. And the explanation for this is that that you are you essentially have less of the emotional influence of the language on you is is lower in your non-native language. So you can I don't if any of our listeners speaks two languages, you'll know that cursing in your native language actually seems like arousing, like saying a bad word actually you can feel it. But saying a bad word in the new language just it doesn't have that same you don't have that same reaction. And so the argument here is that they're Speaking in the foreign language is just not recruiting the same emotional processes. And because of that, people are more calculating. And they're able to be more calculating, and therefore they can reduce the biases and judgmental heuristics and biases. But also, they are more likely to be utilitarian because they don't have a strong emo- an emotional reaction. So, that, so, A, there's an interesting, it's an interesting question of why, why there is this difference. Right. And then that's probably the most interesting part of this whole research. Mm -hmm. But I also think it raises it's problematic for a lot of and I don't know how often social psychology does this, but I know in experimental philosophy, this has been done. And I'm looking in your direction, Hagop Sarkissian, (laughs) good friend of mine at Cooney, cross-cultural study on intuitions about free will and moral responsibility. They give them they give English speakers, the same scenarios in English, and they go on to draw their conclusions based on their responses in what is, although they're very good at English, uh, what is their second language. And you can see how problematic that would be. And I think that's tempting for a lot of these cross-cultural studies, because otherwise you have problems with translation and you have problems with, you know, you have a whole new set of problems if you're trying to translate it into the the native language. But now this result just, I think, casts a lot of doubt on on, on what you can get from surveying people from other countries in a language that's that's their, that's their second language. I mean, I was really interested about this email. This was my number two also because yeah. it just shows – and I don't know. Do you, what do you guys do when you do cross-cultural research? Uh, you know, I haven't done much cross-cultural research. Uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to collaborate on some and we're, we're – because of concerns like this, uh, we, are, we are translating. So the Discuss Sensitivity Questionnaire. This is, this is actually, actually work by Yoel and um, Josh Tiber. Past guests and chronic straw dogs underappreciated. <laughs> it's not a thing. <laughs> uh, it's a condition. They found it. It's in the uh, new, yeah. what do you call it? In the DSM-5. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so if you needed any more reason to think that most of social psychology is total bullshit, here it is. <laughs> You know, you say things like that, and you don't give me the opportunity to, like, really... We should do an episode on this, because actually... Well, we did. I mean, philosophy is getting, is always, is getting attacked, but lately I feel like social psychology has been getting it worse as a, as a yeah. field of inquiry rather than as the people right, who are practicing right. it. The criticisms about failure of replication. Okay. Yeah, but the, and, and the, the you always want a sexy new finding. Yeah, and maybe we can bring Yoel. Yoel is is uh, outspoken about replication when he's not underappreciating straw dogs. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can say that it's required. Oh, so that was actually my number three as well. So uh, okay, good. So we're at. So here's my number two. Okay. 
Uh, and it is from a Slovakian named Otakar. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm mean, sure I'm not. Huge fan of yours. You've got a pretty big group of admirers in Eastern Europe, Czech Republic, and Slovakia. Shout outs. Is kind of amazing. Shout outs, yeah. I'm curious about your opinions on the, quote, sweet topic of practical aspects of philosophical knowledge. Lately, Rebecca Goldstein, uh, who's a philosopher, written novels and, and works, and also the wife of Steven Pinker, um, that philosophy has been her self-help. The discussion is especially alive among so-called philosophical counselors, just self-help gurus. Do you think that philosophy can cultivate our lives and work as a tool for better understanding of our lives, especially better lives, eudaimonian? Do you think there might be something to this? You know, I think a lot of philosophers probably don't think, you know, and, and, you know, they they have a lot, they have, sometimes they have some contempt for certainly the philosophical counselors and the self-help gurus, um, and, and, and often for good reason. But I do think in general, there is something to, to this question. I think I've probably made clear that I, that I wish philosophers would dwell a little bit more about the practical aspects of life and, and especially ethicists. I mean, the thing that has frustrated me about ethics as an academic field of inquiry is exactly how disconnected it can often be from living a good life. What does that mean? How do you do it? We spend a lot of time talking about how to, you know, how, you know, what acting for reasons correctly conceived, uh, what that is. Um, and we just forget that ethics is like a practical discipline. Um, not everybody, again, this isn't true of everyone, not, not true of Peter Singer, for example, not true of Valerie Tiberius, who uh, we hope to have on the show very soon. She has agreed to come on, uh, I think, tentatively. But I mean, you know, go look at, go look at the main ethics blog for our discipline, Peace Soup. Um, I was trying to get some examples of this, but TypePad has been down all day. Um, and, I, and, I, and I know and I like a lot of the people who post there, but just read some posts. And it and, and, and might as well be about, you, you would think that, that we're talking about something that's completely abstract and, uh, and that has v- com- some, something that a, a person could go to and not know what the hell anybody was talking about or why it's relevant or why it's important for their lives. And, and this is ethics. You know, it's one thing when this is metaphysics, or but but this is or philosophy of mind, right. or philosophy of language. But this is ethics, and so I, I do think that's a that's a shame. Um, I mean, is this a fair critique of say applied ethics, where the whole point is to to make some claim about real life decisions? It is like in some ways, it's especially true of applied ethics. <laughs> that's, uh, that's because not good. <laughs> uh, I, I applied ethics, I, I, I don't. I'm gonna make. I don't. I don't want to make any enemies here, but it, it is a problematic field. I think actually, yeah, I have a lot. Of, a lot of people who I disagree with about most things mm-hmm. agree with me that applied ethics right now is problematic. And part of the problem is, is is that although you're talking about applied issues like euthanasia or abortion or um, you know. Uh, bioethics, you, you you still make it abstract. You still make it this thing where you come up with the crazy thought experiment and then the counterexample to that crazy thought experiment. I mean, look, the Judith Jarvis Thompson paper uh, about the violinist and the people pods growing in the, in the, in the, you know, that's a famous paper and it's a good paper and it's a fun paper. You know, I teach it. It's a fun paper to teach. But, um, 
I would be surprised if it ever convinced anybody that abortion was more more permissible than they thought. Uh, and we could do an episode on that. I mean, look, I, like I said, I like the paper, but that's applied ethics, but it's applied ethics in a way that is still very abstract and removed from the reality of what it means to have an abortion. Ah, you know? uh, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't have guessed that that's... What applied eth- that that paper was even applied ethics? So, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but that, but it is, and you know, like professional eth- ethic, they construct these cases. That's what so much of it is. And again, this isn't true of all of it, but it's true of a lot of it. Right. Uh, another relevant email actually is comes on Facebook from uh, a listener from Brazil, Monique Oliveira. Yes, that was that was my next email. Oh, that was your next yeah. one. Okay, so yeah, we can yeah. talk about that. Um, well, we'll just talk about it right now. She says, I'm an engineering undergrad student, so I don't even know whether this is a stupid question, but in issues like trolleys running over workers or pushing fat people from bridges, does it make any difference if people answer what they think they what they think they do or what they would actually do? Because even the easy ones, like pulling the quote-unquote easy ones, like pulling the switch, are probably not that simple in real life. Uh, which, yeah, this is a critical point. I mean, there's a there's a couple of things that I have to say uh, about it, um, and you can chime in, Tyler. But the first is there is a big difference between more moral judgment and moral action, moral behavior. And and for many people studying moral judgment, uh, they just consider it a different question. That is, when you ask what do people think the right thing to do is. Uh, there is not necessarily the expectation that this is what people would actually do for a variety of reasons, that including just weakness of the will, even though it's the right thing to do, you you can't do it. Um, you can't get yourself to do it. Uh, so so there's that. And, and I think the structure of our judgments of right and wrong um, is, a, is a, a pretty different question than what we actually do. We often do things we believe are wrong. We often fail to do things that we believe are right. But I, I think the, the, the objection has is deeper than that. It is. I mean, so I there's think a second that, way. Yeah. 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 Go, okay. So, so yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. So no, you're no, no, anticipating no. what I'm going to say. You're, well, what I was going to say is that sometimes what you judge to be right based on reading about what a, one of these cases is probably different than what you would even judge to be the right thing to do when presented with that case in real life. Yeah. In other words, that there's something about the way these things are described that doesn't get at what's actually happening here and what the consequences and what the full implications are. So separate from whether you would actually do what you judge to be right, even the judgments are different based on what you would judge if you were sitting by a trolley and the trolley is coming by versus reading about that kind of case. Right. We know, for instance, that even when you describe a scenario in a way that makes it um, more emotional, yes, even in, in cases where you describe a scenario in more vivid details, as my friend Dan Martels has shown with this famous uh, smother a baby in order to save you and your group from, from the Nazis that are most certainly coming. Um, it is the case that just by saying, imagine that you have to put your hand over the baby's mouth and you feel the baby's hot breath and it struggles under your hand, that people actually find this to be, they're more likely to find it to be the wrong thing to do um, when you describe it that way. And this is, at least in some way, uh, an attempt at mimicking the emotions that people actually might feel in, in a real scenario. Although, in a real scenario, you're also feeling the pressure of all of the lives that are around you that's, that's also very salient. So, so it's hard to know uh, exactly what it is 
people are using to judge right from wrong in these scenarios. And, and I think that, that it is a good criticism that when you strip them down that much, it's, it's not clear whether they would have any relation to behavior um, for, for a, methodolo- a stupid methodological reason like that. Right. When I read Monique's post on Facebook, the, I, I, I was also I had just read a, a review of Rob Zaretsky, his book on Camus, uh, an author that I absolutely love. We should do a, a whole episode on on, on, on Stranger, um, and on just on his work in general. He's just awesome. And but what what the reviewer was talking about was Zaretsky's discussion of uh, Camus on the guillotine and the death penalty. And mm-hmm. another example of applied ethics. Where, where people write about it in this very abstract, it's this right versus that right, and, you know, all these things. Like, he's just like, go to one of these things and see what it is. And he has, uh, he quotes Camus saying, when silence or verbal trickery helps to maintain an abuse that needs to be ended or suffering that needs to be soothed, there is no choice but to speak out and show the obscenity disguised by a cloak of words. So hmm. sometimes you just need to see something. I mean, I've, all, I've said this before, but I think, you know, if, if Americans just saw what went on in a factory farm, right. then that would be the end of factory farms. Right. Um, I think this case that just happened with the, the botched execution in Oklahoma uh, has made people also just, it just brought more vividly what it is that you're doing. It's very different to consider these things abstractly and to actually this is what is happening and you right. need that information even just to know what your judgment is never mind your behavior but just what your judgment is and i think this is a problem for social psychology i think it's a problem for philosophy oh. i think this is a big problem i think this is like a i, I don't know what to do about it exactly yeah. but but you know I, I gotta I, you know i to defend social psychology a bit um even though there's there's plenty of studies that fall prey to this criticism uh the whole point of social psychology was originally to to find what how these actual situations and contexts social contexts influence judgment and behavior and so so though even though there is a method of trying to isolate factors a lot of the way in which social psychologists have done this is to try to bring people to mimic a, a situation to be as close to real life as possible and so that, hence you have milgram uh, experiments where you actually bring people in and have them have them actually engage in a behavior that would be as emotional as possible without being, well, some might say it's unethical itself. Um, but even once some of your own favorite, some of your favorite studies that I learned social psychology, like a uh, Nisbet and Cohen's culture of honor stuff where they actually, they actually do piss people off, right? They, they have yeah. these manipulations. No, I, I, that's it. right. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, no, th- th- and, and those are the kinds of experiments that I think should be more focused on our behavioral, like mm-hmm. actually, this is the thing when you, when you, when you say we're separating judgment from behavior, the idea is that you're capturing judgment, but then, you know, the, the criticism I take it is you're not really capturing judgment, yeah, you're, you're capturing right. judgment about what you think your judgment would be. And yeah. the closer you can get to to the situation actually happening rather yeah. than your and, the situation being described. All right, so yeah. where does this leave us then? Can can philosophy and psychology tell us about, you know, real things and what, you know, the way to live a good life and the way to live and the way to do the right things and or should we just leave that to novelists and the guy who writes life li- little instruction book or whatever? Here's a, uh, I think that psychology can tell us quite a bit, at least about what what 
what people actually do, right? And and it can tell us when people tend to act in a certain way or judge in a certain way. I think that that what's problematic is in maybe our assumptions about what we're measuring and not so much the findings themselves, which is it, it seems weird to say, for instance, argue that human beings are built for deontological judgments or for consequentialist judgments or whatever, when the truth of the matter is people people change their behavior, they change their judgments across the board depending on a whole variety of situational contexts. But that is information in and of itself. And I think that you get this for, for um, work on well-being, for instance. Under what conditions uh, the very same thing might cause very different changes in well-being? I, I think that the real answer here is that it's slow and it is it has to be slow and methodical and we can build up some interesting answers to to some important questions. Um, but I don't, what do you think about just in general the value that philosophy brings for? Well, I mean, look, like Camus is a philosopher, you know, Hume is a philosopher, Spinoza is a philosopher that is, you know, there, there are a lot of philosophers who, who I've read and I feel like my life is improved for having read them. And so, yeah. and, and then, I, then, then I'm optimistic. And I'm optimistic, you know, I, 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 look, I, part of me gets very frustrated and part of me also is just, look, like you said, this is a slow process. These, these are tough problems and we are trying to sort of claw our right. way the best we can. Another great Camus quote when he was giving his, apparently when he was giving his Nobel um, peace, uh, his Nobel Prize for Literature when he was giving, he, he, and he had been a fairly outspoken supporter of the Algerians um, in their dispute with the French, and he, he was French, um, but, he, but he was never fully on either side, and somebody took him for, to task for that um, when he was accepting the prize, and he said, people are now planting bombs in the tramways of Algiers. My mother might be on one of those tramways. If that is justice, then I prefer my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great quote. <laughs> All right. So you're, okay. you're, um, so solve, so you're number one. <clears throat> Again, these aren't ranked. Yeah. Uh, my last email. Yeah, my last email comes from uh, Paul Bello, who, who was a big influence in, in sort of shaping the, the episode of Robot Warfare, which we got a lot of feedback about and, and which I've enjoyed. I don't know how much you've enjoyed it. Um, I have. I really enjoyed it. I, yeah. I was more dubious about it. It's like that was my movie episode where right. uh, I was a little dubious about it, but it worked out well. So, uh, so Paul, who actually does work on machine ethics, um, you know, there, he sent me a long email uh, uh, about uh, about some of the issues that we discussed. But the one that I just wanted to point out uh, quickly, which is, you know, it, as far as I'm concerned, this is coming from the horse's mouth because he's he's a, the person who's at the front lines of trying to come up with, say, algorithms um, to make ethically autonomous robots. He said, I would have liked to represent a perspective somewhere between yours and, and Tamler's. I'm not wildly optimistic that we'll see genuine moral machines anytime right away, but I agree that in principle they are possible to build. I suppose my issue is the quote-unquote in principle qualification. So much of the discussion in the machine ethics literature is conditioned on these kinds of in principle assertions. I think the discussion would be much more stimulating if we got down to brass tacks and talked about what, if anything, we are able to do today, tomorrow, and within six or so years, for instance, two grant cycles. It, it's a little bit, I think, skirting a, a huge uh, issue 
to to speak of in principle, right? Because a lot of my argument in that episode hinged on yes, there is nothing on the face of it that would prevent us from programming this into robots. Uh, but the truth of the matter is what's preventing us is the actual work and the ability of programmers to make strides in this kind of thing. And my, my concerns were not, not as much about the abilities, but about their motivation. But the abilities right. is obviously like a crucial, right. uh, a a crucial yeah. issue as well. And so uh, I, I, have to, I have to give it to you. You know, it seems like since we did that episode that I've seen like 10 articles in mainstream you know, media <laughs> right. uh, on this exact issue about cars <laughs> that are driving and, you know, self-driving and what do they do, you know, in, a, in an accident-like situation. And then, of course, in war. So um, I'm glad right. we did that topic. We may actually do it again. I think it'll be fun. All right. All right. My number one, it actually is my number one because I thought this was so fascinating. And it's from a, a longtime listener, Dag Soros, who is a stand-up comedian in, in Norway. And he tweeted me this article about a, a, about, uh, a process in Iran that is part of Sharia law uh, that I didn't know about, but I just think is really, really interesting. And it involves how they handle the death penalty. And I'll link to this on the website. But basically, the idea is this. When somebody kills, um, when, somebody, when somebody commits a murder, the victim's family gets to decide whether or not they want the murderer executed or not. And then it's expected of them if they do want the offender executed, it's expected that they participate. Like they push the chair out. They have hanging, so they push the chair out uh, from under the person. And and in this article that he sent me, this uh there was an Iranian killer who who killed somebody in a street fight when he was in his late teens. I think he was 18 years old when that happened. And the family had been had asked for execution but kept sort of deferring it and then at the time of the execution he had the noose around his the noose around his neck and you can see pictures of this on the article he, you had he had uh, you know sort of like a hood over his head i think he has a hood over his head yeah and um and the mother goes up to him and the father is there to kick the chair away but instead the mother just slaps him in the face and makes a sign of forgiveness and the father of the victim removes the noose from his neck and the guy is not going to be executed now because that's what that was their decision we're not going to have time to get into this right now but you know i just i i think that's fascinating and you know i i'm i'm against the death penalty but if we're gonna have the death penalty i would want it to be something like this you know again making it as personal as possible and um, and you know, then it's not like the guy just gets released on the streets just because they decided not to have him executed. All, the only thing the victim's parents have a say over is whether or not he's executed. But anyway, I, I, it's, it, this is a whole pro- practice that I knew nothing about, and I'm so grateful for him. I, I could just see my, I could just see me thinking about this, writing about this, talking about it. I've already talked about it with my classes. It's, it's I, just I really, know, really it's cool. Only- so I just because we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to talk about this in, in a future episode because uh, I I'm still not sure why why you're convinced that this is such a virtuous thing. There are so many issues with with this that 
especially like the prejudice of the families driving whether or not you kill somebody or maybe even the the weakness of the family not being able to do that emotionally um, or not wanting the the stress of doing or having that. pressure um, put on but, her not to, which which they had yeah. they had some pressure to 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 to, to forgive them and right uh, right but, but we can save all of this for, yeah we'll for we'll save future. all this for another episode I, I I guarantee we'll be talking about this in the future but I, I'm really grateful in fact you know if there are listeners who who have just and, and and we get this a lot, but if you know any, any just articles that you think we'd be interested in based on our work and based on what we talk about, please send them to us because it's really helpful. It's one of my favorite things about the podcast when we get a tweet or email like that. Right, I, yeah. I love it when they say you've probably already seen this, but and then they send a link, and I'm like, uh, I've not. <laughs> no, I, right, feel, exactly. I feel like, uh, oh yeah, sure, I came across that. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right all well right. thanks for um thanks for all your emails and comments and tweets and um i, I know we didn't get to everything that we wanted to talk about today so we'll probably do another one of these all right all right well thank you and join us next time maybe with walterson and armstrong yeah we're gonna try to set that up before i'm out i'm out of north Carolina. join us next time